Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, a solar storm pinpoints when Vikings lived in North America. And moving non-magnetic materials with magnets. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Nick Petrichow. First up on the show, reporter Jeff Marsh has been finding out how the sun has helped precisely date Viking settlement in North America. In the 1200s AD, in a couple of texts called the Vinland Sagas, epic stories were told of how the Vikings, also known as the Norse, had made the boat journey west from Iceland via Greenland to the Americas. But it wasn't until the 20th century that these potentially fictional accounts earned some credibility, as archaeologists found hard evidence of Vikings in Canada at a site called Lanzo Meadow in Newfoundland. The first presence of Scandinavians or Norse or Vikings uh, in North America was really discovered in the 1960s. And that's very exciting because it's the furthest west that anybody uh, has ever discovered a European settlement at that point in time. This is Kat Jarman, an archaeologist specialising in the Viking Age, currently at the Museum of the Viking Age at the University of Oslo. But there's been quite a lot of questions surrounding it. And so although we've been excited, people have tried to tie it very closely to the the saga literature. Still, questions have remained, especially about the timing and the duration of that settlement. Unfortunately, the Vikings didn't write down dates in the way we do today. Instead, they gave timings relative to important events, like this many winters after that famous battle. Plus, the sagas were written down several hundred years later, after the Viking Age, and they're thought to be at least partly fictional, meaning we can't really take any of the dates at face value unless they're independently verified. So researchers have often looked for other clues as to the timing of historical events. In the 20th century, this pursuit was revolutionised by the introduction of radiocarbon dating. Radiocarbon is a radioactive form of carbon, and it decays away with a given half-life from the moment it's formed. This is Mike D from the Centre for Isotope Research at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. But luckily it's formed continuously in the atmosphere, and it's formed because the Earth is constantly being bombarded 
by particles from space, from all different directions actually. And it would basically decay away and perhaps disappear in the atmosphere if it weren't for the fact that it becomes part of carbon dioxide and is taken up by plants, just like ordinary carbon dioxide, through photosynthesis. And so therefore it gets built into the uh, structure of plants. So what you need to do is find some organic tissue from the past and measure the amount of radiocarbon in it. And you can trace back up the sort of decay curve and work out approximately how long ago it was when that organism was living. Which is all well and good, but it's just not that accurate. But today in Nature, we're publishing a paper which details a new technique which manages to give radiocarbon dating a sort of turbo boost in terms of its resolution, allowing scientists to resolve dates to the single year. And this has actually only arisen because in the last nine years officially, we in the community have realised that there are moments in time over the last thousands of years when there was a particular signal particular actually a little spike in production in the atmosphere and we think that that was the result of major storms on the sun the likes of which nobody has witnessed in modern times massive storms like huge solar flares that would throw out all these particles and bombard the earth and cause a sudden rise in production what's your sort of reference scale how do we know when these big events took place it just turns out that tree rings when they build in that carbon signal it doesn't move across the different tree rings it stays locked in to the year in which that particular tree ring was laid down and because as you know from when you're a kid or whatever you can count the number of rings in the cross section of a tree and you can work out how old it was when it died There is a whole science called dendrochronology, and you have long, long, therefore, records of these tree rings uh, in these dendrochronological archives in which you know exactly what year each of those tree rings grew. For example, 993 AD, which is the sort of spike that, that our work concerns, there is this jump in production, which we think is caused by one of these events. And if you go to these archives all around the world, and there's like 30 or 40 all around the world, in that exact same growth ring, in that exact same year, you will see this jump. I would like to know whether your technique or the question about Vikings, what came first? Presumably the technique came first and then you realise, well, that could be quite interesting for Vikings. So these events, these sudden upsurges, were really more of interest to solar physicists and astronomers and so on in the beginning. And we knew that there was one in the 8th century AD, and we knew that there was one in the 10th century AD, towards the end of it. And at the time, I was thinking, what chronological puzzles or uh, uh, challenges can we examine that we might be able to really resolve with this method? And I started to think about, you know, the Viking voyages. The Vikings also used a lot of wood, which is very handy for our work. I thought, well, here's a real chance because they, they might have some wood left over. We might be able to get this really pinned down to the exact year. Once Mike and his colleagues had decided a target for their new technique, they needed some organic material that could be tied to the Vikings. Luckily, a retired archaeologist, Birgitta Wallace, who'd been active since the 70s at the famous Viking site Lanzomedo in Newfoundland, Canada, had had the foresight to keep a load of materials in a freezer for future research. So Mike's colleague, Margot Kutems, gave her a visit. 
And I went there and she was very helpful. And I opened that freezer and I remember I said, it's a gold mine. <laughs> so, so what were they? Were they bits of Viking longboat or house or what were the bits of timber? Yeah, so in that sense, it doesn't sound like a, a gold mine at all to uh, many people probably because they were actually just bits of wood. So there were uh, wood chips that just came off during maybe boat repairs or uh, building activities. And actually, there was kind of good news because for this method, it was really important that we had the bark edge preserved for the outer layers. And if you have, for instance, a statue or another artifact, then often the outer bits are chopped off and also they are more precious and people won't allow you <laughs> to take samples. So you opened this fridge and whereas probably anyone else in the world would have opened this fridge and seen these frozen sorts of random blocks of wood and probably closed it again, for you it was a gold mine. Yes. Can you confidently link this wood to the Norse people and not the indigenous North Americans? Because they all show signs actually of distinctive marks that were made by metal tools. And metal tools were not used at the time by the indigenous American people living in the area. How lucky that the Viking carpenters didn't use their offcuts for a nice warm fire. Exactly, yes. <laughs> and as you say, you want bits of wood that have enough growth rings, but also that extend right the way to the edge of the tree so you can work out exactly how old it was. Yes. So I brought them with me to the Netherlands, to the lab. And over there, I investigated the bits of wood under a microscope. So then you separate out the rings and then you're looking for these upsurges of carbon-14, aren't you? These indicators of a solar particle event. How do you spot those? Presumably, you can't see those under the microscope. That's really done by uh, mass spectrometry. Then you get the radiocarbon concentration of the past for each year. And then in one of the samples, finally, we found the upsurge in the 29th growth ring counted from the bark edge. So you've told us that we know that this big cosmic burst of particles happened in the year 993 and you counted the tree ring. So, so what year can you pinpoint Scandinavians being there in Newfoundland? Uh, exactly in the year uh, 1021. And even we could work out sometimes what the cutting season was. Wow, how did you do that? Well, you can differentiate between early wood and late wood, so that the wood that was growing in the spring or in uh, autumn, for instance, you can see that in, for instance, the discoloration of the wood, uh, the wider cells, yeah, it has to do with the thickness of the cells. What is it like holding these bits of wood and knowing that there was a Viking chopping this tree down in the spring of the year 1021. Exactly a thousand years ago this year. Oh, wow. I didn't think about that. It's exactly a millennium ago, isn't it? It is, yes. The <laughs> thousand year anniversary this year. Yes. How apt that the paper is being published in Nature exactly a thousand years after this ancient woodcutter. Yes. It's like we, we waited with publication, for instance, for this year, but it was... Uh... A very happy accident. Exactly. Yes. So... For an archaeologist like you, Kat, what does it mean then to have this kind of very specific year in which um, the Norse people were definitely in this place in Newfoundland? 
I think it's extremely exciting, actually, because with the presence in North America uh, of, of these Viking settlers, the dating really has been the, the big issue because the dates that we've had so far actually span pretty much the entire Viking age, so a period of over 300 years, and that's not useful to anyone. And that dating uh, really is important to us because it, it, it means that we can then relate it to settlement elsewhere. So actually, to, to have something that can pin it down to a single year, which is something that we never really get from any site uh, normally is really quite spectacular so you go from this completely vague uh, idea that it happens at some point in the viking age to something so specific so uh, of course this this specific year that we got the from these results tells us that they definitely were there at that year but i suppose it doesn't tell us when they got there they could have been there for a while before they cut down that particular tree you know yeah absolutely so that is the other question that's unanswered how long did they stay for and certainly the the saga literature suggests it could be up to i think something like seven years but this is we need to think of that as really more as a sort of historical fiction than anything than real written evidence so we don't know that yet and the fact that they are so close together could just suggest that this was literally just a seasonal thing but I think it does open up for uh, dating more artifacts. This is only a very small sample. But if the method works that well on these objects, then maybe we could find more things and we can understand more about that duration. So it's both exciting because of what it's telling us right now, but I think also the promise it has for the future. Finally, I wanted to hear from Mike what he saw ahead for this new dating technique. So this paper has been a really nice illustration, uh, like a sort of proof of concept of this technique. Of course, as you mentioned, these big solar events are vanishingly rare, aren't they? Is there any hope that the technique could get more sensitive and that smaller fluctuations that there are perhaps more of would work? So we would normally measure our references as averages of 10 rings because from this 10 to the next 10 to the next 10, it's not going to change very much. Let's get an average. All of a sudden, there was a rush for measuring every single year. And that's what we've been doing in the last seven or eight years is measuring every single tree ring. And now we do see little ups and downs that are reproducible all over the world. You know, you do see perhaps not as dramatic as these great big jumps, but other sort of imprints on the record that come from maybe smaller solar events, maybe other things that are also unique time markers. So either maybe we'll be trying to find more of these big enough events that we can use as hooks to hook parts of floating chronologies and individual events on every few hundred years or every um, millennium, or we'll start to be able to really recognize very small variations in the record and perhaps we'll be able to date a lot of stuff to the year, particularly if we have a sequence of dates, like which is what you get with tree rings. Uh, we might be able to date lots and lots of artifacts to the exact year. So who knows, actually, where it'll be in 10 or 15 years from now. Yeah. That podcast piece was produced by Jeff Marsh. In it, he spoke to Mike D and Margot Kutems from the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. He also spoke to Kat Jarman from the Museum of the Viking Age at the University of Oslo. To find out more about when Vikings crossed the Atlantic, check out the paper in the show notes. Coming up, we'll be hearing how researchers have managed to freely move non-magnetic objects with magnets. And we'll be discussing the news that Francis Collins, director of the US National Institutes of Health, is stepping down. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights, brought to you this week by Noah Baker. 
pterosaurs were the first vertebrates to fly, ruling the skies for more than 160 million years during the time of the dinosaurs. Now, a beautifully preserved fossil has revealed a pterosaurian trick for reducing drag during flight, a curved aerodynamic profile courtesy of muscles connecting the wings to the neck. The fossil from southern Germany has bones arranged as they would have been when the animal was alive, and crucially contains preserved soft tissue. The researchers illuminated the specimen with violet laser light, which excited mineralized soft tissue atoms. These minerals glowed pink, revealing minute structural details around the base of the neck, the shoulders and the upper arms. Bats use fur to smooth the connections between their wings and bodies. Birds use feathers. Pterosaurs apparently used muscle, possibly including the trapezius and deltoid muscles. This would ease airflow over the junction, and might have even had the added advantage of providing fine wing control. The finding will probably influence how pterosaurs are depicted in reconstructions. Expect more sloped shoulders in the future. Read more in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, USA. A mysterious object is beaming radio waves into the Milky Way. Astronomers have detected an intermittent source of radio waves near the centre of the galaxy that doesn't seem to fit the profile of any known astrophysical phenomenon. The unusual emissions were first spotted in January 2020 by the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder. The array of 36 parabolic dishes had started its systematic survey of the Milky Way centre in 2019. The mysterious source, dubbed catchy name alert, ASKAP J173608.2-321635, stayed bright for about a week and then vanished. When the Pathfinder array looked again, sometimes it was on, other times it was off. But the researchers also spotted the source with the Meerkat array in South Africa. The thing that's got them scratching their head is that several familiar explanations don't seem plausible. For example, unusual activity from a red dwarf star would produce radio waves, but would also emit infrared and visible radiation. And a highly magnetic type of neutron star called a magnetar could also release radio waves, but probably X-rays too, and no such counterpart emissions have been seen. Read more in the Astrophysical Journal. Moving things around with magnets is pretty easy. There's a paperclip here in front of me that I could happily pick up or drag around the desk with a magnet, for example. But what about non-magnetic objects? Well, it turns out it's possible to move them with magnets too. Here's Jake Abbott from the University of Utah, who's got a paper out about it in Nature this week. Yeah, so it turns out any material that is electrically conductive, so we usually think of metals at that point, when you have a time-changing magnetic field, so not a static magnetic field, but one that's literally changing in time. And that could be that it's growing or shrinking, or in my case, spinning. It induces electric fields in space. And if there's electrically conductive objects in that space, then little eddy currents will be generated in that metal. So it's literally, you know, swirling motion of electrons that are already in the metal, but the changing magnetic fields causes them to move. And then those little swirling currents act like little mini electromagnets. So that little electromagnet, that swirling current, 
will react against the magnetic field and generate forces and torques. And you can use this then to attract or repel an object, right? Yeah, it turns out it, it's actually quite difficult to attract. So what we learned we can do is we can push things away. We can kind of push things sideways and then we can spin things and you can put them all together and make things move the way you want. So I will say that this idea isn't necessarily new and this technique has been demonstrated for you know a few hundred years. So people know about eddy current generation for a long time. You can see all sorts of cool YouTube videos. One of my favorite ones is someone takes a big block of aluminum and they put it in an MRI scanner, these huge magnetic devices that your whole body slides into. And if you're very far away from the MRI scanner and you tip this block, it tips over, whack. But if you'd set it near the MRI scanner, this big heavy block of aluminum just falls just gently to the ground. And that's these eddy currents slowing down that motion. So that's the generation of force right there. So people know about these things. It's used in separation of metals in recycling. So if you have a, a spinning magnet, any metallic objects will get a little kick from this and they'll get thrown a little farther than all of the non-metallic objects. And so you can actually sort things into two different bins this way. So in scenarios like this then, sorting non-metallic metals from other trash, that's kind of just pushing in a 2D plane. And you really wanted to expand it out into three dimensions, something that people have been looking at for a while. Why did you want to get into that extra dimension? So first of all, when we say 3D, those of us who are engineers, we think in terms of 6D. Because really, you think about three dimensions in position, so sort of left, right, up, down, forward, backward, but you also have three degrees of freedom in orientation. The reason we want to do 6D is because that's how manipulation works. When you pick up a glass and wash it, you grab it with your hand and you reposition it in XYZ space, but you also orient it so that you can get the brush into the side, right? So manipulation is a six-dimensional thing. So if you want to start talking about manipulating objects, you have to think in 6D. And so you've been working to try and solve this puzzle of how to move a non-magnetic object with a magnet in six dimensions. Can you give me a sense of what that looks like? So, you know, we do a bunch of experiments in numerical simulations first before we ever build any hardware. But our physical experiments is we have a fish tank and floating on top of that fish tank, we built a raft, just a plastic raft. And in that raft, we have a copper ball. And that's actually the object we're manipulating. And then we have four electromagnets. These electromagnets are another invention that came out of my lab. We call it an omnimagnet. And it looks like a cube, but it's actually three electromagnets, each pointing in orthogonal directions. And so by controlling the three currents to this magnet, you can make a magnetic field that can be pointed in any direction. And we can control its strength also. And so each of these electromagnets is creating a rotating magnetic field. And we turn one on for a second, and then we turn another one on for a second and spin, 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 spin. And we do this in a coordinated fashion. And every time we do this, each one of these spinning omnimagnets gives a little nudge to this copper sphere. So it's giving a force and it's giving a torque. In our fish tank, we can only move in two degrees of freedom in position, just on a horizontal surface, and then one degree of freedom in rotation. If you just if you imagine the raft rotating about the vertical axis. But our numerical simulation has the full six degree of freedom manipulation. So we can understand how 
things would move more generally. And a question I have to ask is, why are you doing this in a fish tank? Well, fundamentally, these forces are fairly weak because these metals are not magnetic. They're, you know, we're using a completely different set of physics. And so because they're weak, it's most applicable to manipulation in space where you're not fighting against gravity. You're not fighting against the weight of that copper ball. And so we really need to be simulating microgravity on Earth. And there's different ways, and they all have limits. We've gone with the fish tank approach. And you're using the buoyancy of water to sort of hold the object up as you're manipulating it. And microgravity and space, then, does seem like a key potential avenue for this research. What is it about this six-dimensional movement, then, that is so applicable in this environment? So there's this big problem of space debris largely made up of non-magnetic metals. You see a lot of aluminum, but other metals like titanium. And that junk, once it crashes into the space station or a space shuttle or other junk, it fragments and it can be very dangerous and very destructive. And some of that junk might be spinning rapidly. So if you want to, let's say, reach out and grab it with a traditional robotic manipulator, you first have to get it to stop spinning so rapidly because if you try and reach out and grab it, you'll just break your robot hand. If it's an object that you want to repair, it's not that different from my example of washing your cup in the sink. You know, you have to be able to grab an object and bring it to you and orient it in a way that lets you access the thing you want to access. And that's that's a manipulation problem. And so you're hoping then that this system could be used then to slow spins, to bring in space junk, to clean it up. I mean... Is what you're describing a tractor beam, Jake? Well, that's so funny that you would say that. I've looked into this a little bit. The one thing about the tractor beam from science fiction is they say, you know, it's a beam that you can point at an object, but you basically don't affect objects next to it. And that's not the case with us. So with our method, let's say you had three different pieces of junk that were all kind of floating around in a cloud. They would all respond to this field that we're applying. I think you can make an argument that for the applications we're interested in, that's actually a benefit. There's lots of little pieces of metal. You would like to be able to act on them collectively and move them all together, bring them all towards you together. But like I said, we've found that it's very difficult to attract objects. You can either push them away or push them laterally. But we're already working on ways that by using multiple magnets, we can bring objects toward us. I do have to say, Jay, that it is a long way from the fish tank where you are essentially manipulating the small copper sphere to the full space situation. What sort of challenges do you need to overcome? Because the forces that you're generating at the moment are quite weak, for example. Even in the future, when we've got this figured out and it turns out it actually is a useful technology, you will never be doing this over a long distance. This is something that you're going to have to get up relatively close to an object in order to sort of uh, bring it into you. The other thing, you know, we're manipulating spheres, and the hope is that a sphere is sort of a good first approximation of other geometries, other hunks of material that aren't perfect spheres, but a sphere is just an approximation of it. So if you think about like maybe some of the things we might want to manipulate that are thin cylinders, we still don't fully understand those objects. People have been trying to crack this nut for a while from what I understand. Jake, how excited were you when you actually saw it working in the lab? The research I've been doing for over a decade now, using magnetic fields to manipulate objects without touching them, every single advancement has seemed like magic when it actually happens. Every single one. In a way, this maybe felt the most magical in that it seemed like the hardest hill to climb because these these metals aren't magnetic. 
But I will say by the time we actually did the manipulation, I was nearly 100% confident it would work because at that point we had already extensively modeled the forces and torques that we can generate on these objects. And that's the one thing about, you know, when you understand how the stuff works, that takes a little of the magic away, I guess. You know. <laughs> that was Jake Abbott from the University of Utah in the US. You can find a link to his paper over in the show notes. Finally on the show, Francis Collins, the director of the US National Institutes of Health, has announced he'll step down from the role at the end of the year. The NIH is the world's biggest public funder of biomedical research, and so many scientists will be wondering, what happens now? To find out, I've got two nature reporters with me. Hello both, why don't you introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Alex Witze. I'm a correspondent for Nature based in Colorado, and among my beats, I cover science policy and science advice in the government. Hi, I'm Nidhi Subaraman. I am based in Washington, D.C., and I cover biomedical research and policy issues, including the moves of the NIH. Well, thank you both for joining me. Now, probably a good place to start is to talk a little bit about Collins himself. He's steered the agency for 12 years. What sort of legacy is he leaving behind? Oh, Francis Collins is pretty much a legend in U.S. science. He is a force of nature. He has done a lot of high-profile initiatives. I mean, of course, before he joined the NIH, he ran the Human Genome Project. He organized a lot of NIH's big initiatives, such as the Brain Initiative in Neuroscience. He's been very successful, both with politicians and with the public, at arguing for basic biomedical research. His Christianity is a big part of his identity, and so when he has been working, for instance, with Congress on stickier ethical issues like fetal tissue research. He has a man of faith credentials, which has been very effective for him in arguing for such research. I mean, it sounds like he's leaving quite big shoes to fill. And also, the past few years, to say they've been tumultuous would probably be an understatement. How has Collins manoeuvred through things like the pandemic and the Trump presidency? I would say, all things considered, Collins navigated the waters pretty well. In the pandemic, Collins was very much out there front and center in a lot of the public response to the pandemic. Now, the NIH's role, their lane, as it were, is to dole out funding for basic research. But Collins was also out there a lot on TV talking about issues like face masks and transmission, which normally fall to maybe other agencies like the CDC. But because he's a big communicator, he was out there a lot. So he became a target for a lot of the politicization that's happened here in the States. There's been a lot of public hatred because of his pandemic response, even as he's led the agency in science. One thing that Anthony Fauci told me was, it was great to have Collins and his sort of stable and seasoned approach in the face of the political and public blowback that all science agencies were getting, and the public health and biomedical agencies in particular. Fauci told me that he had a meeting with Dr. Collins one time when he was thinking of retiring during the Trump administration, and, you know, sort of talked him out of it and said, sort of, we need you here. And his retirement has been some years in the making, from what I understand. So he is stepping down now. Is that because he feels secure that his legacy will be ensured? Collins's public line so far was that it was time for someone else to take on the agency. And one thing he was mindful of was if his departure would also upset the pandemic response and the pace of things. And he says... 
in addition to, you know, whatever else he may be thinking inside his head, at the moment he felt like the pandemic response was pretty secure and would not be shook if he'd stepped down. And well, that brings us neatly on to who might be the successor. But before we think about that, like what sort of challenges might they face? You know, whoever steps into this job, I mean, it is a tough job, even not during the pandemic. So the person who comes in needs to, you know, first of all, have the scientific credentials to be well-respected in the scientific community. They also have to be really great at administration, which sounds super boring. And then you have to figure out how to lead us out of the pandemic, right? We're at this stage in the pandemic where how the federal government responds is important and what can the NIH do to better prepare us for the next one. And then, of course, there's the bigger questions that are facing all agencies as well, like systemic racism in the U.S., which has become very much to the fore since George Floyd's murder last year. The NIH has long been working on diversity, equity, and inclusion issues in its workforce and its grantees, but they have not perhaps moved as quickly as many would like. So there are there's so much work to be done in terms of trying to fund equitably. And so the director of the NIH works closely with the president as well. So do we know much about what Biden's priorities are for the agency? Yeah, Biden has said quite a few things about his approach towards science and technology that people are still sort of trying to read the tea leaves on what that might mean for the next NIH director. So Biden has a lot of sort of big science, big government priorities. There's always a theme of sort of restoring U.S. dominance in science and technology. I'm not sure the U.S. has lost it, but there's very much a big government in support of society theme in the Biden administration, which is sort of a notable change from the Trump administration, which worked a lot to dismantle a lot of sort of science structure within the government. In terms of what that means for the next NIH director, well, Biden really loves biomedical research. He has a personal connection with cancer. He's lost family members to cancer. In fact, he drove a cancer moonshot initiative when he was vice president under Obama. So we can pretty much guarantee that whoever gets that NIH job is going to hear from Joe Biden a lot probably asking what cures are coming down the pike, probably asking how to translate, you know, research discoveries into treatments and cures much more dramatically. Yeah, the other thing that uh, the Biden administration has been pushing is something called ARPA-H, which is envisioned as sort of a new institute, which has a different flavor from the existing structures at NIH. And it's thought of as a rapid development towards biomedical results research model, something like the DARPA that the Department of Defense already has underway. The thinking is that it would dwell within the NIH, but there have been discussions about whether it is the best agency to host it. And it remains to be seen, despite Biden's grand plans for it, how it will be funded by lawmakers in the US. And so I guess my final question is, and we may be entering sort of speculation territory a little bit here, is do we have any clues as to who might take up the role? So it's definitely a parlor game in Washington right now, tossing names around. The one thing I will say that I think pretty much everyone agrees is that the next director for the NIH needs to not be a white man. So in the history of the NIH, there has been one woman director, and there have been no directors who were not white by the U.S. definition. So of all the names that get tossed around these days, it's a much more diverse pool. And I think that's crucial. 
Well, I'm sure nature will be keeping a close eye on the potential successors and who is picked to lead the NIH. But for now, thank you both for joining me. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. And listeners, there's an editorial in Nature this week. We'll pop a link to that, along with a new story written by Nidhi, in the show notes. And that's all for this week's show. But as always, you can reach us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Or you can send us an email. We're podcast at nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Nick Petra-Chow. Thanks for listening. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.